It is good to be able to come together this evening to do so with the mindset of pleasing our Heavenly Father as we offer the heartfelt worship that we each feel toward Him. And we're thankful for our membership and for our visitors alike and for all who are assembled and gathered in the peacefulness and tranquility of this hour. You may have noticed as we have given thought to the title of the lesson, we'll be discussing Luke 17 verse 3 tonight as we give thoughts to a matter of forgiveness. Isn't it amazing to reflect upon forgiveness? We seemingly hear a great deal about it. This opening slide is meant to perhaps move our thinking in a direction in which we'll be better prepared to focus a bit more intently on the passage. In fact, it's the latter part of Luke 17, 3 this evening. Specifically, the joy that we feel as we assemble tonight takes us to the wording of that prayer that we just led a moment ago. In that prayer, John made mention of forgiveness. As he, in fact, approached the great throne of God, he, in fact, pleaded, prayed that God would forgive us. And as we give thought to that, of course, tonight, we're going to discuss the intricacies and the Bible teaching of forgiveness. And as we do that, we'll make application not only to the forgiveness that we hope that God extends to us, but along the way, we'll have opportunity to consider about our extension of forgiveness to other people. The middle part of that slide brings us to think about a, a word that we shall find closely related to forgiveness in the sense that it's repentance. We might as well go ahead even at the moment and give a definition for that and place in our thinking some appreciations about it. You and I know from the Bible's teaching of it that repentance is this. It's a change of mind that manifests itself in a change of behavior. That is to say, it is a change of mind that shows itself by a change of action. One doesn't live the way one did before. One, in fact, attempts to not do those things that perhaps previously were commonplace. But repentance is that description of this change that has taken place. And merely the manifestation of not doing those things anymore is demonstrational of the fact that the repentance has occurred. With that in mind, look at the bottom of the slide. Tonight, as you and I discuss forgiveness, isn't it so that frequently our world does misunderstand it? There are failures in light of what its prerequisites are. Sometimes there's misunderstanding about what it involves itself. And on other occasions, the carrying out of it also becomes a matter of challenge. To say all of that is to say it doesn't set aside the Bible's teaching of it. And so tonight... I know that each of us are intently interested in knowing what the Bible has to say about that. And so why don't we, in a renewed way, revisit a text like Luke 17, 3. And as we do that, we'll be reminded again and again of just how powerful and profound is the whole topic of forgiveness. At the bottom of the slide along the way, we'll ask, just how important is this? Is it crucial? Is it critical? Is it vital? Finally, the characteristic of what are the explicit New Testament obligations for you and me concerning it. To say all of that brings us to a point of definition. Let's devote a fair amount of time then at the outset of our lesson to reflect on the very character and nature of defining what we mean and what the Bible means by forgiveness. As you and I begin at the top of that slide, be impressed with me, would you? 
that this word forgive in the English language occurs 112 times in the King James Version of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, we find again over 100 times this word the translators perceive, put it into English as the word you and I call forgive. Of those, 61 of them occur in the New Testament. In fact, as you study the gospel accounts, you'll find that an overwhelming number of those 61 occur in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's as though they were critically important for the appreciation of the life our Savior lived and for the teaching that He set forth. Forgiveness. Beyond that, could you appreciate this with me? The Greek word that serves as the background in the New Testament the one that's translated quite often is forgive, but may I suggest there are some instances when it's translated with other words besides forgive. In the New Testament alone, that word occurs 143 times. Again, may I say how often the gospel accounts refer to it. It's as if Jesus frequently was called upon to teach about forgiveness or He exemplified it in the way that He set forth the truth. You and I know so well how different our world would be if there was more a tendency of forgiveness and a greater understanding of what it involves. That partly is what prompted me to give thought to this lesson, especially based on the text of Luke 17. Nextly, might you notice that definition. That Greek word that so often is translated forgive, what does that literal word in the original language mean? To send off, to send away. To let go, to leave, to forgive. Frequently the descriptions are of a circumstance in which one readily understands the connection. Consider the following with me. In Mark, 18, Mark 1 verse 18, Jesus on that occasion was of course calling some of those fishermen to be His disciples. And you'll notice that on that occasion this literal word is used in the original but it has to do with letting their nets go. Let your nets go and come follow me, he said. And so they were to leave behind the matter of those nets and come and be followers of him. For he, of course, would make them fishers of men. Or yet another example in John eleven forty four, when there it was the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus, of course, had been appropriately bound, if you please, with the claws of that day. And yet Jesus calling into that tomb, Come forth, Lazarus! But you'll notice after He came forth, Jesus commanded them, Take those, those linen clothes off of Him. Unbind Him. And therein again was the usage of that original word. Let His being bound by those things be no more. Let that go. Look at some other usages. In Acts 13 verse 38, we notice here this word, it's again translated from to let go or to release, is used with respect to sinfulness. As Paul preached on that first missionary journey, wasn't it so that on this occasion, as he reminded the people just how vital and needful was the teaching concerning Jesus Christ, he pointed out to them, Be it known unto you, men and brethren, that you could never have been forgiven by virtue of that old law but rather it's through Jesus. It's through this One who is the anointed Son of God. Through Him is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Now, these Jews were, of course, well-schooled in what the Old Testament appreciated and taught, 
And Paul reminded them, you could never have been forgiven only by virtue of what those things presented. Forgiveness. Look at another one in Colossians 1.14. That sweet passage detailing the forgiveness from sin. And how is it obtained? Through the blood of Christ. Now Paul was very specific, wasn't he? That the forgiveness that one is able to appreciate from the very nature of the guilt of sin, it requires the blood of Christ. There is no other. Tonight, as we will build toward that a bit more thoroughly in a moment, you can begin to see that of all those usages, hundreds of them in the New Testament, to release, to unbind, to let loose, you can already gain a feeling that there are many verses then that talk about a process by which one can be loosed from his sins. That is to say, you no longer face the guilt that's characteristic of them. Every person in the human family should be excited and thrilled to ponder what's the mechanism by which one will no longer answer for the guilt of sin, but rather somehow it's forgiven. One is loosed from that guilt. As you approach the bottom of that slide, you begin to gain a sense that some Old Testament worthies were aware of the powerful character forgiveness. May I direct our attention for a moment to Solomon? In 1 Kings 8, after those years of labor in constructing the temple, and after, of course, the time had come when all was ready, there came an amazing set of dedicatory rites. 22,000 animals were slaughtered just in part of the dedication of that temple. And yet on that day when it was dedicated, Solomon stood and made a rather rousing speech to, to those assembled Jews. And as a part of that speech, and it was a lengthy one, Solomon pointed out rather amazingly, when this people sin, and he was talking about the Israelites, the Jews, when they sin, God, please have an attitude to forgive them if they'll turn to this temple and again properly make attitudinal repentance. Even Solomon in the wisdom of that moment understood how impressive and essential it was to be forgiven. It might well be in light of that. Why don't you and I bring ourselves directly into this? In 1 John 3 verse 4, there's a, de a defining matter, a matter that helps you and me see why you we need forgiveness so much. Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And so, although Solomon knew that those people of that day were going to transgress, you and I know, of course, today that we fail and we stumble and we sin. And you'll notice, whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law. Any time then that I or you fail in regard to transgressing this. That is to say, we do what God has commanded us not to do, or we fail to do what He has told us to do, or we have violated our conscience on some matter of expediency. In any of those ways, we have become guilty of sin, and we need forgiven. Oh, how we need the forgiveness which God makes available isn't that a pertinent topic? Isn't that a wonderful theme to know that it is possible to be forgiven? Have you ever thought about how sad, in fact, how sickeningly hollow it would seem 
if the Bible told us about the reality of sin but didn't tell us what to do to be forgiven, how miserable life would be to know that I have erred, I have fallen, I have sinned, and yet I don't know how to be forgiven of this. Aren't we thankful that God has explicitly told us in His Word what must be done to be forgiven and what blessings then follow that forgiveness? As you close that slide with me, let's revisit that thought then. To be forgiven, as we apply that specifically to our sin, means to be let go of the guilt that goes with it. To no longer be underneath the burden of what that guilt once was. I'm freed from it. Just like Lazarus was freed from the binding force of those grave clothes, you and I can be freed from the terrible shackles and guilt of sin. To think about that brings us to another slide in which we'll continue that thought. On this slide, let's begin it like this. The Roman writer, Paul, in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, made a dramatic description. May I direct your attention to it. In part of it, he quotes from Psalm 32, but the application is sterling. The application is, in fact, nothing short of remarkable. In Romans chapter 4, Paul wrote these inspired words, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. As Paul wrote that inspired section of Scripture, he hearkened back to at least again a portion of the opening verses of Psalm 32. And even in the long ago, David yearned and longed for that reality when sin would not be imputed. Now, if you are of a habit of making notes in your Bible, you might appreciate that word impute means to account, to reckon. In other words, there is an accounting made. And David, in fact, made a blessing or pronounced a blessing on that situation when God would not reckon a person's sins to him. In other words, it's been erased. It's been forgiven. And the language of verse 7 says, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Now, as Christian people, we, above all other people on earth, are keenly aware of the special blessing of forgiveness because we've experienced it. We know very well what transformation has taken place in light of our life formerly until now. And we furthermore know day by day the wonderful blessing of a continual cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. And yet you and I know that individuals of the world and those who haven't come to the Master, they haven't appreciated this and they haven't in fact, of course, begun to live in harmony with it. And as tragic as that is, it motivates us even in light of the announcement Jonathan made earlier, a personal evangelism seminar when we too would hope that others would come to know the blessing that we now have and that they too could know what it's like to have iniquities forgiven, sins that are covered. In light of that, notice again verse number 8. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute or reckon sin. Clearly, based on that passage, there is a mechanism by which God, although a person may become guilty of sin, God won't impute the guilt of that sin to him. He'll forgive it. In essence, it'll be remitted. As we continue our journey tonight, we'll discuss that more carefully. 
But the next point on the slide is this one. The Bible highlights then, doesn't it, that this whole idea of forgiveness is a return to a state that was formerly appreciated. When a person is right with God, living a life looked upon by God as holy and appropriate and righteous, didn't Paul, writing to Titus, say in Titus 2 verses 11 and 12, that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Praise be for individuals who do with consideration lead a life of holiness and godliness. But of course, when one stumbles and falls, didn't this passage in Romans 4 tell us how sweet it is to contemplate that there's a means by which God won't impute that guilt of sin. It'll be removed or taken away. The next point on that slide then leads us to appreciate a noun form of the same word we've already been studying tonight. We've cast a spotlight on forgiveness and how great a word that is. Isn't it fascinating to notice the noun form of that same Greek word, the one that we mentioned earlier occurring so often, the noun form is remission. And so when you and I read in the New Testament where there's a verse that uses forgiveness and another that uses remission, it's the same underlying Greek word. And so for sins to be remitted and for sins to be forgiven are identifying the same procedure, the same idea in the New Testament. That remission, of course, takes us to so many passages. We might already begin to remember one that's so powerful. On that day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, here were a group of people, Jews, who had been motivated to understand that they had been guilty of putting to death the only Son of God. Peter had preached with such force and such directness, the fact that this very Jesus lived openly among you. He wasn't concealed or hidden, and yet you put Him to death. Peter didn't mince words with them that day. However, the bars of death, if you please, were unable to hold Him. For verse 24, He rose by the power of God, and not only did He rise, He now reigns at the right hand of God on the throne of David. Verses 28 to 31. And then in the conclusion of that, message, you notice, verse 36, the summary, if you please, the grand invitation that Peter extended, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ, the Son of God, the perfect one from heaven, you put him to death, Peter told them. Verse 37 says, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Some of them were appreciative of the fact that they indeed were guilty of exactly what Peter affirmed. Men and brethren, what shall we do? They cried out with a very motivated voice and a compelling one at that. And Peter, by inspiration, said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the, for, for the remission of sins. And there's that word again. They were guilty of sin, and here they were being given inspired information whereby that could be forgiven, that it would not be imputed to them in terms of its guilt. About 3,000 of them, it appears, hastily responded and replied, because verse 41 says, Then they that gladly received His word were baptized, and they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 
when you and I think then about the matter of forgiveness. Isn't it true that the New Testament continues to develop that theme so richly? Hebrews 9.22, Without shedding of blood is no remission. Now isn't it so that the human family has often perceived a number of things that may have a part to play in forgiveness. Some think if I give enough money in the collection plate, surely God will look upon that with favor and forgive me. If I'm able to do enough good, as the world might call it, well, might we ask this again, Hebrews 9, in a thundering passage, without shedding of blood is no remission. No amount of money that I give by itself will produce my forgiveness. No amount of, quote, good by itself will generate forgiveness from God toward me. Because that's not the predicating, the predicating factor for it. Notice at the bottom, the forgiveness of sin is predicated solely, exclusively, and only, of course, on that sinless and guileless blood of Jesus Christ. To your attention, I would call Luke 24, verses 46 and 47. The Great Commission is recorded by Luke. Thus it is written, And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins might be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. In whose name? Jesus' name. Remission of sins, you'll notice, was a part of that clarion message. It was to be heralded worldwide, but it was to be done so based on the reality of the Master. In His name. You and I, of course, 20 centuries this side of those events of the Bible rec record of, of that first century tells us, of course, we still proclaim so powerfully and loudly that wonderful message, forgiveness through Jesus' blood. One last thought on that slide might be, of course, that critical memorial and how vital it is. You and I call it the Lord's Supper, those communion emblems, but as you think about the fruit of the vine for just a moment. Didn't Jesus in a timeless way in Matthew 26, 28 say, in regard to that fruit of the vine, this is my blood which is shed for many. Why? For the remission of sins. And so when we think about that fruit of the vine, notice it is a testimony, it's the very real matter reminding us that it's the blood of Jesus that permits and is the thoroughfare through which we can be forgiven. That blood of Christ closes that slide. As we then think again about this matter of forgiveness, when you or I err, when we sin, when we transgress or violate the law of God, how are we forgiven of that? Is it automatic? Is there a process whereby we obtain that forgiveness? There are many in our world, as you and I so easily know, that have misconstrued and so taken from context many of the features. You know that on, as you watch a television sometimes, a particular individual may plead with those who might be listening to simply fall down on your knee and pray for forgiveness. And the preacher asserts that you'll be forgiven. Sometimes you may be encouraged to send a little money 
Sometimes you may even have a gift sent to you in light of it. But you're a promise and you're assured that God will hear and answer by way of forgiveness. Is that what the Bible teaches? Maybe you've heard of a sinner's prayer as it's sometimes called. This might not all be an inappropriate time to notice that that phrase, the truth of that, is nowhere to be found in the New Testament. The Bible doesn't teach that. Nowhere. That's not the means whereby forgiveness is acquired. And that's not how God bestows it. Because again, the blood of Christ has to be applied. The blood of Christ is what must be approached. And so at the bottom of that slide, we should anticipate steps or some mechanism whereby that can be appropriated. Of course, you and I know too that as we discuss forgiveness by and large tonight, we have at least thought about God's forgiveness of us. It goes without saying that on occasion we may well be called on to ask someone to forgive us or we may be called on by someone to forgive them. Thankfully, the Bible too is not silent concerning that. Let's turn to the next slide and continue our journey to go forward some more with our study. First of all, let's highlight a significance. The significance attached to the importance of it. I asked the question earlier, but it's so vital to think of it again. Is it important to be forgiven? Is it important that I forgive others when they ask me to? Let's start like this. First of all, let's give thought again to God's forgiveness of us. When you think about heaven, that place, of course, to which you and I yearn, we long to be there. We know there's only two eternal destinies. One is heaven, the other is hell. And we want to go to heaven. We want to so conduct ourselves here so that that place can be our eternal reward and our eternal abode. Our residence spoken of in John 14, verses 1 and following. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. There really is a place of exquisite prepared mansions, rooms, if you please, and Christ is preparing it. That preparation leads us to then think about some things not in heaven. What are some things not going to be there? Because that immediately informs us if I'm guilty of something that's not there, that immediately means I can't go there. In Revelation 21, verse 27, in the closing verse of that second to the last chapter in the Bible, John is giving us a rather amazing description. You remember the scene how that in verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 21, John saw the blessed city come down out of heaven. It's a description, you see, of the circumstances and that which accords to this. Because he quickly informs us there's no sorrow there, no pain, nothing that so often characterizes the, malign the malignity of our way here. In verse number 8 of Revelation 21, this is a place where you don't see the behaviors characteristic of what we often see in the human family. 
sexual sin and dishonesty and deception and lying, that's not going to be there. None of it. And later as that chapter continues in its description, we notice that the blessedness of the light follows from the sun. And I mean S-O-N. For all the light that's there is Him. And furthermore, you notice that that chapter closes by saying, nothing that defiles will be present. Nothing. Now that word defile carries the thought of impropriety and it carries the thought of that which tarnishes and mars. When you and I have the blessedness of entering that place, all of the horror and all of the tragedy and all of the unpleasantness surrounding sin will no longer be present. It won't be there. Might you and I be impressed with what Jesus said as He began that model prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. As far as the Bible now reveals to us currently, everything that's done in heaven, by the Father, by the Spirit, by the Son, by all the angelic beings that are there, all of it is in perfect harmony with the will of God. And as such, it's perfect in every way. And yet, There's a blessing that's pronounced upon those in Revelation 21 and 22 when they too are told in Revelation 22, 14, Blessed are they that do His commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and enter in through the gates into the city. That same city wherein there's no sickness, no sorrow, no death. Oh, how wonderful it is to contemplate being granted the opportunity to enter the gate into that city. Clearly, those then are people who've been forgiven because nothing that defiles will be allowed to enter. They have been forgiven on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. That forgiveness leads us to that next point. And again, it's a very encompassing truth. All have sinned to come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And of course, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. If anybody says, if any person says, I have not sinned, John says in 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9, that man's a liar and the truth is not in him. For me to say I haven't sinned or I don't sin, that's not right and that's not truthful. Rather, of course, what each of us have to appreciate is I need to make constantly sure that I have avenues to that whereby my sins are forgiven so that if I die at any moment... I can die in the Lord and be ready to receive that blessing of Revelation twenty two fourteen, to enter into the city. Motivates us to live faithfully, doesn't it? Every day in faithful harmony with the words of the gospel. That matter of forgiveness brings us to that statement, then if one is not forgiven by God, there's no hope of entering heaven. To that person, again, who has reached the age of knowing wrong from right and is not forgiven and dies tragically in that state, there would be no opportunity, no hope of entering heaven. And by the same token, what about applying it to you and me? If it's true that forgiveness involves returning to a state like it was prior to a given offense being committed, God longingly wants to forgive you and me, by returning us to the state of correctness that existed before we made the error. Sometimes you and I have heard it explained in terms of justification. 
What does it mean to be justified? It means just as if I had not sinned. And that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? I've erred and committed things I shouldn't, but yet the Bible tells me how I can become justified, namely to return to a state such that I no longer will suffer the guilt of that error that I made. The Bible teaches about this. And this matter of forgiveness, of course, touches even the relations we have one with another. As far as those matters, what if I refuse to forgive someone who who properly asks that I forgive them? Would you read with me in Matthew chapter 6? In the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus put it in language and wording like this. As often as He spoke in this set of passages about what is it that involves ongoing and righteous Christian living. He says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Isn't it clear then that if I have a heart that's hardened, one that refuses to forgive when a person asks me to, the text says God won't forgive me. And therefore, in light of what we stated earlier, that means this individual, I am not able to be saved then. It goes without saying that the Bible's teaching of forgiveness is critical. It's absolutely crucial. That forgiveness perhaps leads us to notice in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35, Jesus taught a parable, and we each remember it well. This person, in fact, owed so very much, but the king forgave him. Remember, it was 10,000 talents, far, far more than he had easy access to at all. And yet the king, in the great note and character of forgiveness, forgave him of that debt. And yet this same man, now in fact, found someone who owed him a very, very small amount. And that same man who was forgiven so much would not forgive the other one. In fact, he had him thrown into prison so he could pay the debt. And when the king heard about what that individual had done, he made note of him, I forgave you of so much, but you wouldn't forgive another of so far smaller amount. The king then in anger turned his attention to the one whom he formerly had forgiven, and he told him rather powerfully to be cast into a place of great anguish and difficulty until he could pay the debt. And as the Lord closed that parable, in a timeless way he said, Go. And make sure you do likewise in the essence of extending forgiveness. Tonight, as we think about extending forgiveness, it brings us to this closing slide. I've simply entitled it those things that might be called obligations. All of us, as we think then about being forgiven, and it'll take us back to the text of Luke 17.3. May I encourage you to revisit that passage with me as we begin this consideration. First of all, when there's two parties involved, as of course there always is in this matter of forgiveness, there cannot be a return to a former state unless both parties wish to return to that state. Let that sink in just a moment. There is a state of peace and harmony that's existed, and yet one ultimately does something wrong against the other one. 
one of them has a strong desire to return to that former state of peacefulness and brotherly consideration and tranquility, but the other one doesn't. You can't return to that former state of peacefulness unless both of them are desirous of making that movement. That statement will manifest itself in some of these things to follow. First, in light of the sin we've committed in which we have transgressed God's law directly. God wants there to be a state of peace between Him and us. In 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 we read, God would have all men to be saved and to come into a knowledge of the truth. In 2 Peter 3 verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness, but long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Oh, God wants you and me to be saved. That means He wants us to be forgiven. He wants our sins to be remitted. Therefore, He wants it to be true. We, of course, have to want it too. Do we want it enough to comply with the terms whereby that forgiveness is received? Do we want it enough such that with conviction we approach those steps that He demands? As we study further... It's a sad thing that not all men want to be forgiven. That really is a tragic statement, isn't it? In Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. Many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And therefore, few there be those who not only recognize God's willingness to forgive, but they too want to be forgiven. And they thus bring their life into harmony with that which He teaches. When you and I then think about wishing to return to that former state, no wonder Paul wrote, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. That development highlights that there has, of course, ever been conditions that men didn't have to subscribe to in order to know that forgiveness from God. In the Old Testament, consider briefly some of the statements in passages such as these. In Second Chronicles 7, verse number 14, this is the chronicler's version, again, of that dedication of the temple. We noted earlier in 1 Kings 8, uh, another passage that details it, but in that Chronicles passage, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Did you notice the conditional nature of that passage? If my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will forgive from heaven and heal their land. That if then is, of course, the easiest way to highlight those conditions. And so if there were conditions in the Old Testament, we shouldn't be too surprised that there are conditions in the New. Let's return to our text of Luke 17. In verse number 3 it says, Take heed to yourselves. Jesus begins that passage with a rather strong word of warning. Listen carefully, He says, Take heed. That phrase, take heed, is often used in the New Testament to highlight a very strong warning or a strong sense of information that's now given. 
Jesus on several occasions, take heed and beware of covetousness, Luke 12, 15. Take heed how ye hear, Luke chapter 8. On this occasion, take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. One of the things then that you and I can appreciate as we apply this lesson of forgiveness to our daily walk with brothers and sisters in Christ and even others, we give thought to this, if thy brother trespass against thee. So if there's a brother in Christ, an individual who offends me by some action done or said, perhaps things undone, the Lord on this occasion gives a commandment. It says, rebuke him. Isn't it amazing that you don't just hold a grudge, you don't just let it fester in your mind and say nothing, you bring it to the person's attention. Maybe the person isn't even aware of what he or she said or didn't say. Maybe the person completely has a different perspective and it was not his or her intent. But it says, rebuke this person. Now, obviously, one would do that with a character of concern for the person's soul. But then it goes on to say, and if he repent, forgive him. To close that verse, isn't it fascinating to notice the steps that the Master mentioned? First, if he trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. I've placed a few notes on that slide as you give thought to it. And notice the application in light of our approach even to God in this way. Here, if he repents, forgive him. Isn't it so that in the New Testament we are commanded to have a heart and an attitude willing to forgive? But of course, there's a prerequisite. The person's got to repent. You and I may wish to return to a former state of peace and harmony, but if that person doesn't, there can be no ultimate forgiveness. He or she doesn't want to return to that former state. It's repentance that's a requirement. He said, if he repents, forgive him. Therefore, we should be keenly aware, isn't that an appreciation too of the way we approach God? God won't forgive us until we repent. Remember again those words of Acts 2.38? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remission was predicated on, forg- on, on repentance. They had to repent in order for God to forgive them. And you and I, of course, have are told here we must repent if we expect somebody else to forgive us of an error that we've committed. Oh, how quick then we should be to be ready to say, I'm sorry. I didn't understand. It wasn't wasn't my intent to say or do that. Would you forgive me? Are we quick to have words like that in our heart? May we never be quick to hold the grudge and be mad because... Someone offended us. Did we rebuke them like the text commands us to? And if we did, did they offer repentance that we were in fact not willing to extend forgiveness? Remember earlier Jesus said, if we won't forgive others, God will not forgive us. That's powerful and direct and very challenging, isn't it? As you think about some of the ways that that slide closes, that did highlight, 
If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. Sometimes we might be in a position to ask, what if someone then has wronged us, but they will not repent? Based on what we've studied tonight, we are not able to extend forgiveness, but may we be quick to note this. We must never ever harbor a mean spirit, a kind of attitude whereby we're kind of glad that they didn't, because we like holding grudges, because we're not Christ-like if we do that. If they won't come to the point of asking forgiveness, at least we can't be mean-spirited toward them. At least we can't hold grudges out to them because if we were to do that, we wouldn't have the Spirit spoken of so often in the New Testament. Wasn't it true that when Jesus was on the cross, in an unforgettable statement of Luke 23, 34, He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here was a situation where people had just driven nails into his body and they'd spat upon him and they'd put a crown of thorns on his head and they had treated him with such blasphemy and such ugliness and such disrespect. And yet the Lord wished, He wished for things to be right with them and God. Now, roughly 50 days later, when the gospel plan of salvation was extended, some of the very ones who had helped crucify the Lord did receive forgiveness but they didn't receive it that day the Lord prayed for it because the terms for receiving it had not yet been delivered. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And about 3,000 of them did it. When you and I think then about forgiveness, it's a wonderful thing to maintain the harmony that God wishes us to know. He wants to forgive us, but we have to repent. And He wants us to be forgiving to others, but they need to express repentance as well. Tonight, as you think about the concourse of your life, and as I reflect on my own, why don't we conclude our lesson with these final thoughts. Forgiveness is so crucial to eternal salvation. Are you currently living in a state of forgiveness? Have you been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ from the sins that you've committed formerly in life? And are you living day by day in a way where that blood's constantly cleansing you? 1 John 1 verse 7. If you are, then continue to live that way in honor and in great appreciation until life on this earth shall be no more for you. But if you have come to a position in life you're not living that way, Maybe you once were forgiven, but currently you're not living in a way to which you know that you're covered by the blood of Christ. You need to make some changes tonight. That's called repentance. And when you do, God's promised to forgive. If we could help one or more tonight in your public response to the gospel, we'd be delighted to do that. If you have never become a Christian, First, contacting the blood of Jesus demands that you believe in Jesus and repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. And as you do that, His blood will wash those sins away and you can then proceed to walk through life faithful and forgiven. This evening, this song of encouragement has been chosen. We'd be delighted to assist anyone of whom we might and we would urge and invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.